This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. To me, the river is not... It's not part of the landscape. To me, the river is alive. The river, the river's like a person, but it's, it's even beyond a person. The river is more like a familiar God. It's a God that you can have a conversation with. Today, we're heading to the largest, oldest, deepest freshwater lake in the entire world. Home to one-fifth of the world's freshwater, Lake Baikal is known as the Pearl of Siberia. It stretches over 400 miles long and it's surrounded by jagged, snow-shouldered mountains and taiga forests, vast frozen tundra on all sides. Like all lakes, Lake Baikal exists because of a river, and in this case, the Seleng, flowing 932 miles from its source in northern Mongolia. And today, in the company of writer and fishing guide Peter Fong, we're going to paddle all of it. Are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best stories from the road. My name's Aaron Miller. I'm a travel writer and your host. And if you like travel, adventure, and opening your eyes to this incredible world, we're going to get on well. So drop me a line, tell me what your travel plans are and where you're dreaming of going next and what you'd like to hear about on this show too. The Instagram is at Armchair Explorer Podcast and the website is armchair-explorer.com. You can sign up for our newsletter there too. But don't worry about that right now because it's time to embark on an epic river journey. Peter Fong has lived, waded, and explored everywhere from Tokyo to Shanghai, Vermont, Montana, Aruba, and Morocco. Perhaps no place has captivated him as much as the emerald grasslands and glittering sapphire waters of Mongolia, where he's been leading fly fishing trips for nearly 20 years. But things have been changing, and there have been plans for numerous dams and hydroelectric projects across the region. In 2017, the World Bank placed a temporary freeze on plans for two dams in the Selang River. And while that was a victory for environmentalists, it may also have been simply a stay of execution. That's what scared him. So he decided to do something about it, something crazy, the world's first descent of the Selang River. The place where we work is such a beautiful canyon. In any other part of the world, it would be a national park. But in Mongolia, this canyon that we take tourists to is actually just outside the boundary of the park. It just one night, we were having many bottles of wine, and I was wondering, what happened 
if we went past our last camp. And when I traced it out on the map, I realized it went to Lake Baikal. And I didn't think about it too much more after that, but then the next winter when I was home, I read that they were considering a dam on the river. And of course, the fish that we fish for the time, and you know, we're very far from the ocean, so they, don't, they can't migrate to the sea, but they do migrate up to you know, 60, 70 miles a year just along the river. So I thought, what would the dam do to them? Of course, it would interrupt their migration. And then I started reading more about the potential effects that the dam would have downstream as it got to Baikal. And I thought, okay, no one's done this. I looked online trying to figure out how much research had been done in this part of the drainage. And there's not much in English or German or an easily translatable language. It's mostly Russian. And a lot of that research is not like baseline science. It's more, you know, about production. How productive can the river be for people? And it's all focused lower down on the other side of the border. Because on the Russian side of the border of the river, there's lots of mines, there's been a lot of logging, there's a big pulp and paper mill on the shore of the lake. They've done much more development on the Russian side than on the Mongolian side. But before the journey could begin, Peter and his team had to reach the headwaters on the summit of Mount Belchir in the Darhad Depression, an incredibly remote and rarely visited part of northern Mongolia. They began in the Ulan Taiga strictly protected area, a one million acre national park close to the Siberian border. And from here, they drove until the road ended where they transferred to horses to take them the rest of the way. That's when the trouble started. I have an incredible fear of horses. <laughs> I know how to ride and I even rode as a child, but my mother used to raise horses. At one point, she had over 20 horses, but about a few months after she retired, she was thrown from a horse, had a traumatic brain injury, and never recovered. And she was wearing a helmet. I mean, she was like an accomplished rider. I mean, she had been a show jumper, dressage, all of that stuff. She was a very good rider, but a rattlesnake spooked the horse and she fell. And this was something that changed not only her life, but the life of our entire family. So in Mongolia, it's just considered a fact that you will be able to ride a horse <laughs> and that you will be comfortable on a horse and not afraid of them. But I don't have to tell anybody that I'm afraid of a horse. They already know, they can see me approach the horse and they already know, okay, we have to be careful with Peter when he gets on the horse. So that's how it begins for me. I mean. I, of course, I've ridden a lot in Mongolia, but I, never, I can't get over that fear. That fear just stays with me. And so that's how it begins. <laughs> I know we need horses to get to the top of the mountain, and I know I'm going to have to ride. I offer to walk, and Chumursu, superintendent of the park, says, no way, you can't, you can't walk, you have to ride. And so I ride. In Mongolia, horses are everything. This is a nation of nomads and herders who have crossed the endless grasslands of the steppe on horseback for thousands of years. If you're afraid of horses, Mongolia is perhaps the worst place in the world to be. And to make it even worse, Peter's horse wouldn't slow down despite his attempts, and he spent the next two days bouncing painfully 
to the foothills of Mount Belchere. From there, he scrambled a windswept ridge above treeline into a near vertical chute, clinging to the rock with freezing hands, inching slowly to the summit of the mountain. Mongolia is so different than, I mean, I've done a lot of things in North American wilderness and in Alaska and in Europe and other places, but Mongolia is interesting because when you get to a place like the top of Mount Belcher and you can see for 50 miles in every direction, you don't see any roads, you don't see any buildings, but it doesn't mean there aren't people living there. There are people living there and they've been living there continuously for thousands of years. So it's not like wilderness the way we usually think of in North America, meaning wilderness has no people in it. This is a beautiful place with an intact ecosystem and an untrammeled landscape. But people have been living there this whole time. They just haven't screwed it up. To me, that's very humbling and shows kind of an alternative to what Americans usually feel like, oh, there's a river, let's dam it and generate electricity. There's a mountain, let's take the top off and see if there's any minerals in there that might be worth something, you know. In Mongolia, of course, those same ideas are starting to become popular. But for the previous 2000, no one was thinking in that way. They were thinking, let's graze our sheep, let's graze our goats, let's not have too many because that'll affect the grass. And let's just keep living this same way, this sustainable way, without trying to harm the landscape. They call Mongolia the land of the blue sky. There is a sense of limitless space here and unconquered beauty. All of the surrounding mountains, he writes, look huge and barren, and five long valleys radiate from Belchir's hub like spokes on some gigantic wheel. It's all rock and sky, clouds and water. We are above everything. No matter where you rest your eyes, near or far, there is no sign of any road or building. His journey had begun. The part of the river that we started on is inside what's called in Mongolia a strictly protected area. And the river itself actually parallels the border between Russia and Mongolia for a little bit. So we weren't allowed to go to that part. So where we started, I originally had hoped just to follow the first trickle of water off the mountain and down and watch it grow until it became a navigable river. But we didn't get to do that. Where we started, it's a relatively small river. If you're a fly fisherman, you could definitely cast across it. It was too small for the drift boats, but we had kayaks. And so we started those first few days where the river was small, we started in kayaks. And so that was really fun with a little kayak. You can go fast. You're moving down beneath these huge canyon walls. We had good weather, we had beautiful sunny weather, and it was warm, we actually went swimming. So that was kind of one of the idyllic parts of the expedition. Of course, I love the people, my friends who live in Mongolia, and the animals and the fish, but my first love is the river. The river is, to me, the river is not it's not part of the landscape. To me, the river is alive. The river, the river's like a person, but it's, it's even beyond a person. The river is more like a familiar god. It's a god that you can have a conversation with. Rivers are alive. 
If trees are the lungs of the planet, rivers are its blood and veins. They are an essential part of the water cycle. They support life and allow it to flourish. They provide us drinking water and irrigation. And within their constant flow, poets and philosophers have found deeper meanings too. Leonardo da Vinci said, in rivers, the water that you touch is the last of what has passed and the first of that which comes. And that too is why he was here. It's been said that fishing isn't really about catching fish. It's the language of that conversation. It connects you to that environment in the same way climbing connects you to the mountains and diving to the ocean. When I'm fishing or even when I'm guiding, when I'm involved in that activity, whether myself or just tangentially as the guide, I don't think about anything else. All I think about, I'm always watching the river and the fly and the anglers, and I'm looking for fish, of course, and seeing how they react to the fly and making adjustments, making adjustments with the boat, and making adjustments with the rod, making changes to the fly. That's all I think about for the whole day. But the difference in Mongolia is that besides the smaller fish, the fish that look like trout and are about the same size as a trout that everyone's familiar with, we have this species called the taimen, which is related to the trout, but instead of being a foot long or even two feet long, they can be five feet long. And the river hasn't changed. The river still looks like a trout stream. It's clear and it has boulders and you can see the fish swimming around in it. But instead of seeing a foot long fish coming up behind the fly, suddenly you see a five foot long fish. I mean, a fish the size of a golden retriever. So it really changes your conception of what fly fishing is and even what a trout is. But these fish, they have lived in these rivers for hundreds of thousands of years. There's another old Mongolian folktale too about a big taimen that gets frozen in the ice during the winter. And a starving man comes upon the taimen and the taimen tells the man that he can eat a little bit of him every day so that he won't starve to death. And then eventually spring comes and the ice melts and the fish swims away. And some people will tell you that that's why we have to take care of Taimen because Taimen are taking care of us. And now it was time for us to take care of them in return. Their mission was twofold, to draw attention to a remote and beautiful landscape that has been stewarded by countless generations of nomadic herders and was now under threat, but also to understand more about the health of the river through the lens of its most charismatic species, the Taimen, which is listed as endangered both in Mongolia and in Russia's neighboring region of Buryatia. Those fisher. When I say they're very valuable, I don't mean they're valuable in monetary terms. I mean, they're very valuable as an animal because they're so rare and unusual. And it's like, you know, an old elk in the mountains. That animal has knowledge and, you know, that animal has significance in its ecosystem. So we would never want to remove it. It needs to stay there. And that's why the catch and release fly fishing. And so, as the river widened, they transferred from kayaks to rowboats and began the long paddle some 60 days to the outlet of the Selang in Lake Baikal. Days drifting on the river, sometimes in sun, often in storm, evenings casting for Taman. 
They pass through canyons of rust-colored cliffs and fantastically eroded spires, he writes. And beside grasslands, the dry green gold of August end, studded with blue globe thistles and other late season wildflowers. There was a day that Guido, Laney, and I were alone. We didn't have a native Mongolian speaker with us and we're just floating down the river looking for a place to camp. The river was flooded, it had been raining a lot. The driver wasn't able to follow us, so we were just gonna meet him a couple days farther down. And we got on a gravel bar and it, we could not light a fire. It was really windy, all the wood was wet, but we had a copy of Bear Grylls' book about how to survive in 101 situations. I don't remember the exact title. It was in the bottom of a dry bag. So it was completely dry. So we just started tearing off pages of the book <laughs> until we got a fire lit. And we got a beautiful fire lit with that book. It was, I'm so thankful to that book. And we had all these sausages, hot dogs and Mongolian sausages. And so we cut willow sticks and we were cooking them over the fire on sticks. And I had this great idea that I'm gonna fly the drone down and watch as everyone's cooking over the fire. But of course, I forgot the drone is a helicopter. <laughs> and as soon as it got close enough to the fire so that it was taking good picture, the fire just exploded and burned everybody's <laughs> hot dogs. So <laughs> Lesson 102, if all else fails, burn the book. From here, it was still weeks of hard paddling to the end. They met local herdsmen camped in gares by the side of the river, speaking with them about potential threats such as mining and climate change, but also about their own lives and challenges. They cast for taming and collected samples in the river. They huddled around the fire and didn't burn any more books until eventually they crossed the border into Russia. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
Hey guys, if you're enjoying this episode, do me a favor, please help us spread the word about it. Tell one friend about one story you love. It makes a huge difference. And if you want to do more than that, go ahead, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can do that right now and follow us on Instagram too, at Armchair Explorer Podcast. Come and chat, travel and adventure. We're going to get on well. Check out our back catalog too. Lots more river adventures there. Jordan Salama traveling the entire length of Colombia's Magdalena River is one of my favorites. We got Darcy Gector going source to sea in the Amazon. And if this episode has piqued your interest about Mongolia, it's been on my bucket list for years. Check out John Rose's episode about horse trekking in Mongolia. We stay with some nomadic families. And he tries a couple of local delicacies, including arag, or fermented mare's milk, the national drink. Let's just say he had to hold his nose while he did it. So thank you so much, guys, for whatever you can do. It's incredibly helpful. It means an awful lot. So thank you for being here. Thanks for listening. And let's get on with the show. The Russian guy that we had, he was an ethnic Buryat. And so even whenever we passed like a sacred spot on the road, we would stop the car, get out. In his glove compartment, he had this little set of shot glasses that fit in a leather case. And he would get it out and he'd line up the glasses. And if there were three of us, we would pour three shots of whiskey and then we'd all make an offering to the shrine, drink our whiskey and then get back in the car. But we also had other encounters with shamans. The Buryat people are indigenous to Mongolia and Siberia. For thousands of years, they were semi-nomadic and pastoral, raising cattle, sheep, goats, and camels in the screaming winds and long nights of the Siberian mountains. The Buryat live in one of the harshest places on earth, yet they have endured. Nearly half a million still live in Russia and Mongolia today. And because of their inextricable ties to the land and its rhythms, Buryat religion has always centered around a reverence for nature, which is reflected in their traditional shamanism. And despite oppression and persecution from Russian authorities from 1920 to the early 1990s, shamanism continues to thrive in small pockets of the land today, particularly near Lake Baikal, which is known to the Buryat people as the sacred sea. We came to a place, it just looked like an ordinary place on the bank. We got out, the shamans were there on the bank, they had a fire and they were doing something at a table and we didn't talk to, to them at first, but they called us over. They wanted to know what we were doing. They started pouring liquor into little glasses again. This is something that shamans do, I guess, but they were drinking vodka. so. We each had a little toast of the vodka, and then they said they had something important to do. One of the shamans went down to the river. He was carrying something very big, and he unwrapped it. And I walked behind him to look at it, and it was about the size of a box kite, and very elaborate structure, latticed wood, and each piece of wood was intricately wrapped with silk and foil. It was all different colors, blue and gold, yellow, green, orange was looking at it thinking, what does it do? And it turned out to be not a boat exactly, but something that floats because he set it on the river and let it go. And so this beautiful object that must have taken hundreds of hours to create just floated down the river. It was an amazing thing to watch. 
The river hurries it away so quickly, he writes, that there isn't time to fix an image in my memory. All I can recall now is feeling that I am witnessing the labor of hundreds of hours set forth on the currents of thousands of years. Someone has taken care of and for the river. This place where we were, once we'd been there for a little while, we realized it must have been a very important place because all the willows, all the trees had little pieces of paper tied to the branches and silk scarves. And there was a lot going on in that place. And if we had had more time with the shamans, I would have asked. But as we were watching this go away, the shaman turned to us and said, are you guys going to stay here for a little bit longer? And we said, yes. And he said, well, we have another appointment. So would you take care of our fire? And we said, sure, we'll take care of your fire. What do you have to do? And he said, well, he pointed to the fire and he said, this is very important. The fire has to burn out completely by itself. You can't touch it. Don't add any more wood to it. Don't put water on it. But just make sure it doesn't spread. Make sure it just goes out by itself. That's what you have to do. So that's what we did. We actually stayed there until after dark, watching the fire. Fire holds a deep significance in Buryat shamanism, representing purification and transformation. And in that moment, watching the fire burn low, they're offering those hundreds of hours of work and care drift out into the sacred sea. Peter felt something of that transformation too. He had spent nearly two months on the river and traveled close to a thousand miles. And what had started as a trickle on the slopes of Mount Belchere was now beginning to open into the mouth of the largest lake on Earth. The delta is the biggest freshwater delta in the world. It's probably 40 miles across. When you put the drone up, and I pushed the drone as far away from the controller as I could, still couldn't see the whole delta. It's really gigantic, and it's an incredible habitat for birds and it's like the river in that it's not static, it's alive. There are these big islands and sandbars that are always rising and falling, so it's always cannibalizing itself, picking up sediment and moving it to other places. And there's an amazing number of channels. When we got in there, we realized we just have to find current and stay to the side that's gonna be protected from the wind because you can't see where you are, there's big, you know, cattails, or they're not cattails exactly, but big rushes that are taller than you can see even if you're standing on the seat in the boat, because I did get up on the seat to try to see where we were, and you couldn't see. So it's really just a maze of channels. And of course, we didn't have a motor, we were just rowing. So you didn't want to get into a channel that you would have to back out of because you would have to row the whole way. And the day we quit was storming as well a lot of wind out of the north, and we were trying to head north, so the wind was pushing us back. We got out into the main lake, and luckily there's a big sandbar that protects that part of the delta from waves, because otherwise you would have waves building all the way across the width of Baikal. Probably there would have been, you know, seven or eight foot waves, but instead we just had a little three foot swell, which was fine in the boat that we were in. The vastness of Lake Baikal is difficult to comprehend. Covering a surface area larger than Belgium and more than a mile deep, if it were emptied and Victoria Falls, one of the largest waterfalls on the planet, were to pour into it continuously 24 hours a day, 
it would take centuries to fill up. On a clear day, the turquoise water reflects the sky like a mirror in perfect symmetry. And when it freezes, the ice is so dense that trains can travel across it. And it is filled with life, like the Nerpa, the world's only freshwater seal. And nobody is sure how they came to be there. Their closest relative lived thousands of miles away. But the Nerpa is far from the only mystery. Lake Baikal is home to several unexplained happenings, from ghostly hallucinations to ships being enveloped in fog and never re-emerging. Once a scientific submersible, the Pacis, was nearly 4,000 feet deep when its crew witnessed a sudden and brief spotlight, shining from seemingly nowhere and then disappearing as quickly as it came. So it's no wonder this place is so significant to the Buryat people and so shrouded in myth and legend. Stories of chasms in the lake, which are quite literally gateways to hell and fearsome dragons lurking out of sight in the waters. And while you can see 130 feet down on a clear day, when storms arrive, the water is dark and foreboding and it's easy to imagine those legends are true. I felt shocked in a way because it was so overcast and windy. Once I got out into the lake, I couldn't see anything. I couldn't see the shore. I couldn't see the near shore or the far shore. We were just in the lake and we knew which way the wind was blowing and we knew which direction the waves were going. And luckily, the direction that the waves were moving was also the direction that we wanted to go in. So we just turned and we took the waves on the stern and we started rowing thinking eventually we're going to see land, and eventually we did. In his book, Peter writes, To the north I see a dark line of low clouds scudding across the mouth of the bay. The near hillsides are bright with yellowing larch, the farther mountains snow-capped and forbidding. As the sun sets, a few clouds glow ruby and gold. I was really happy. I was giddy. I was also really cold. And I was also really wet. You know, once we get out, then we have to take the boat apart because we had to put it in a van to take it back to the town. So the boat has over 200 parts. You just have to take a wrench and start undoing them all. And I knew I couldn't do that when I was soaking wet. So I had a dry bag with an extra set of clothes in it. So I just went behind a fence and I started taking off all my wet clothes. It was probably, it was snowing. It was probably 33 degrees. It was just above freezing, very windy. It started snowing and I was just taking off all my clothes to put on the dry clothes. And I heard a crow or what I thought was a crow calling behind me and I didn't pay any attention to it. But then it seemed like it was right behind my shoulder and I turned around and it was an old man wearing like a, a Russian hazmat suit because it was really raining hard. But he was deaf and dumb. He couldn't speak. All he could make was this croaking sound. So then we started having this conversation with sign language, and he wanted to know what I had been doing. So he used his hands to mime had I been hunting ducks, like he swung a shotgun. And I told him no. And then he pretended to reel a fishing rod. Was I fishing? And then I told him no. And then he took his finger and he put it on his head and he made that motion for a crazy person and he pointed at me. <laughs> and then he left. I mean, he was the person who greeted me when I made land. 
I do not pause to appreciate the strangeness of this encounter, he writes, nor do I recall any particular incident from the previous 50 days and nights in a watershed larger than the entire nation of Sweden. None of the transcendent moments of beauty, like the evening we floated beneath an ecstatic colony of sand martins feeding on newly hatched mayflies, and none of the fearful ones either. Not the traction-defying scree fields of Mount Belchere, nor the near disaster of the fallen trees, nor the late-night visit from the jack-lighting poachers. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Right now, the Selang River Dam project is still on hold. But that could change, he says, at any moment. The plans are already drawn. And it's a complicated picture involving the human and economic needs of the country, as well as the ecological needs of this living river and the sacred sea it feeds. And though he had reached the end of the river, it wasn't quite the end of the journey. At a mountain he began, and so too, at a mountain he would end. So this is the biggest mountain that's actually, once you're on this mountain, you can see almost, well, you can see as much of the lake as you can from any one spot. There are bigger mountains that are, you know, in the north off the coastline, but this is actually on a peninsula in the middle of the lake, more than 10,000 feet high. Maybe it seems silly to another person thinking, why, when they rode all that way, why do they then have to climb a mountain at the end? But to me, it seemed like exactly the thing we should do. So we could get a view. So we could try to get a sense of how big Baikal really is. I mean, because we had that sense at the beginning of the trip, looking at the headwaters of the river and thinking, oh my God, the drainage is so huge and you can see so far in all directions and you don't see any town or road or even building. So I wanted to have that same feeling at the end of the trip where we got to have a similar view of Baikal and this mountain was perfect for that. Again, it wasn't a perfectly clear day, but there was a high haze and there was a lot of snow at the top. And the, the top of the mountain is just a kind of a big plateau. So you kind of have to skirt around the edges to get the different views of the different parts of the lake. But I have to say the most memorable thing was when we were coming down from the mountain Somehow coming up, we'd avoided all the snow. We had found places to walk where the sun had left the snow and there were even a few berries, right? Like a few wild berries that we could eat that tasted so sweet and as we were coming up the mountain. But going down, suddenly we were in snow like up to our thighs. And I was trying to get around this one patch of snow and I saw a pika, which is a little animal it's very cute. It has little round ears and no tail. It looks like a little bunny almost, little brown bunny. It let me come very close to him. So I took a couple of pictures of him and watched him. He was harvesting hay and grass and making little piles that he would store for the winter. And then I had to pick my way around all these big boulders and snow. And I just looked back. And when I looked back, he was sitting on a ledge 
overlooking the lake. And he had an unobstructed view for miles. And it just seemed like he was the ruler of all he surveyed. I called him the little king of everything. I loved seeing him do that. And who knows what he was thinking as he was looking out over the lake. But that little animal really sticks in my mind. There is a concept in Mongolian culture. It's called himori or wind horse. It relates to your personality or spirit and reflects strength and courage, inspiration and connection. And there on the summit of Mount Markovo, the almost incomprehensible immensity of Lake Baikal around him, the limitless land of the blue sky behind, and his little friend, the Pika next door. Maybe he felt something of that too. No man ever steps in the same river twice, the ancient Greek philosopher Heraclitus famously observed. For it's not the same river, and he's not the same man. It changed my life, and I hope when people read the book that even if it doesn't inspire the same love for the same river, maybe they'll think about the river nearer their home and the fish and the birds and the animals that live in that river and maybe look at them a little differently and think, if I follow this drop of water, where does it go? Who else is it nourishing? What would happen if it was shut off, if it was suddenly blocked and that river wasn't flowing anymore? One thing we found out is, I mean, aside from nourishing fish and animals and birds and then grass and trees, rivers are also moving a lot of sediment and not just rocks and gravel, but also carbon. Like we think about in these days of warming, we think a lot about how carbon is transferred around the planet. But there's a, a lot of carbon that is flowing from rivers into the sea or into Lake Baikal. That carbon sinks to the bottom and then it's safe down there. It's not going to come in back for a long time into the atmosphere and heat up the planet. So rivers are doing that work as well. We all have this narrative in our heads that says that's too hard or that's too far, or this is impossible. When you feel something under threat, and for me, this river I love, I really feel like it's under threat. And that's what moved me to try and make this trip happen. I would say that it's important that we don't count ourselves out of anything. And that we don't forget that rivers are alive, flowing, moving, never the same, always chattering, always changing. And because of that, each one is unique. And in fact, like a true fly fishing addict, Peter had taken a week away from planning his Mongolian expedition to fish another river in Bolivia before he left. And it turned out that that river, which is part of the Amazon rainforest, has a completely different water regime. It's in a completely different ecosystem. The native people use it in very different ways than native people in Mongolia use their rivers, but it was under a similar threat. There was a company that wanted to build a dam and a Chinese company that wanted to loan the money and of course pay itself for building the dam and then saddle the government with the loan for a hydro project which might never make its money back. And I thought, okay, that is a very strange connection because I just flew literally halfway around the world so maybe that in there somewhere is what I learned about what's happening to rivers around the world is that we can't just focus on, oh yeah, here's one river that's famous and 
it's under threat, like take the Colorado in the United States. There's so little water that reaches the Gulf of Mexico on any given year that it's really hard to say that there's a mouth of the river anymore. All the water gets used up before it even gets there. So we think, oh, that's a threatened river, that's an endangered river. But I think there's very few rivers that couldn't end up that way if we're not careful, if we don't pay attention, or if there are not enough people to love the river. And even if there are, I mean, it's not that there's any lack of people who love the Colorado or love the Yellowstone or love the Mississippi. And yet still there's subject to all these insults and injuries. I'm optimistic enough to think that if there are more people who love the river and care for the river, then that's better. Then we have a chance of a better outcome. If I didn't feel like there was hope for the river, I don't know what I would do. <laughs> I mean, to me, nature can come back from terrible things. I mean, I mean, even things that nature does to itself, like crazy storms that wash lots of sediment into the river. If you were there on the day after, where it looks like a war zone and so much sediment has washed into the river that it looks like you can stir it with a spoon, like a stew instead of a river. You see that and your heart sinks and you think, oh, how can the river recover from that? But then you come back a month later and the water is clear again, you can still see the sediment. You come back a year later and a flood has washed out that sediment and it looks almost back to normal and the fish are there and the insects are there. So. I mean, we, we are capable of doing terrible things to the river, but I, the river is also very capable of healing itself if we let it. So yeah, I'm optimistic. He quotes Thoreau in the book, Who hears the fishes when they cry? Perchance, after a few thousands of years, if the fishes will be patient and pass their summers elsewhere, meanwhile, nature will have leveled the dam. Like those shamans casting offerings into the water and taking this journey hundreds of hours on currents of thousands of years, Peter has taken care of and for the river. A year later, he finds himself back in Mongolia. Here in the countryside, he writes, on an idyllic summer day, I do my best to temporarily forget the great powers. Here. The greater powers are rock and sun, grass and river. As I stand on the bank, fly rod in hand, I can hear the splashes of feeding Lenok and grayling. Wherever a fish's snout breaks the surface, a buoyant dimple ripples outwards. I feel lucky to be here and hopeful about the future. Upstream, a cloud of pale mayflies assembles like thoughts gathering. Thank you so much, Peter, for bringing us to this little explored, ancient, majestic part of our world and for showing us all that it has to offer and all that could be lost. To get your hands on Peter's book about this experience called Rowing to Baikal, visit rowingtobaikal.com. There's a pretty awesome YouTube trailer on there, so make sure to check that out. And to keep up with his other work, follow him on Instagram at pwfong. Also, half the proceeds from his book sales are going to the International Tainment Initiative via the Wild Salmon Center. 
Visit wildsalmoncenter.org to learn more about that. It's a fantastic course. We'll also have all those details in the show notes. So thank you so much for listening. And don't forget to share this show with your friends. Connect with us on Instagram at Armchair Explorer Podcast and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. It takes just a moment and it really does us a huge favor. It helps us to keep making this show for you. And don't forget, visit aptpodcaststudios.com for more on their shows as well. So until next time, keep looking for your Himori, your wind horse, and keep stepping into new rivers. Because the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive. This episode was produced by Armchair Productions. Find our other shows at armchair-productions.com. Armchair Explorer is a part of APT Podcast Studios. Jenny Allison wrote and produced the show along with me and Charles Tyree did the audio editing and sound design. Our theme music was by the artist Sweet Chat.